This episode of Pet Resource Radio is sponsored by Hills. At Hills, their decades of science and research guide the company in creating nutrition that's a step ahead, so pets and pet parents can enjoy every day together. As the U.S.'s number one veterinarian-recommended pet food brand, Knowledge is Hills' first ingredient, with more than 220 veterinarians, Ph.D. nutritionists, and food scientists working to develop breakthrough innovations in pet health. Hills Prescription Diet, Therapeutic Nutrition, plus the company's everyday foods, Hills Science Diet, Hills Healthy Advantage, and Hills Bioactive Recipe are sold at vet clinics and pet specialty retailers worldwide. For more information about Hills, their products, or their forward-thinking approach to nutrition, visit them at hillspet.com or hillsvet.com or connect with them on Facebook, Twitter, YouTube, and Instagram. Our outreach efforts are also supported by La Mega KC, Kansas City's Spanish radio station, and Hot 103 Jams, KPRS, KC's number one station for hip-hop and R&B. We're talking with cat behaviorist Dr. Rachel Geller about what you should know about your cat's behavior on this episode of Pet Resource Radio. From the Pet Resource Center of Kansas City, I'm Dave Shapiro. And I'm Sierra Howe. Welcome to the program, everyone. We're coming to you from our headquarters here at 59th and Troost in Kansas City, Missouri, where we see about 35,000 pets a year for affordable vaccinations, spay-neuter services, and more. Our goal is to keep pets and people together through supportive services for people who are in need. And that is exactly what we do. Yeah. I'll tell you what, we got a lot of stuff going on in this episode. Why don't we just jump into some pet news? Sounds good. First up, a dog kissing a shark? It's true. Jade Purcell was doing some diving off the coast of Australia when a 22-foot whale shark appeared. Whale sharks filter feed, eating mostly plankton and small fish, so the shark posed no threat. It poked its head up, and what did it find? Jade's 8-year-old Labrador retriever sailor, of course, who was still on the boat. Uninterested in the people diving, the shark moved toward the boat, and sailor leaned her head over the side to sniff, and then, boop, a little kiss. Jade initially thought the bubbles her friend was making in the water drew the shark in, but she now thinks maybe the shark heard the excited squeaking noises that Sailor was making in the boat might have done it. So, I, yeah. I'm yeah. Like, <laughs> <laughs> I might have peed my pants still, even though whale sharks pose no threat to humans, but oh, this is so cute. That's real cute. And the, the picture is real cute, too. Uh, next up, Robbie Stouffer, a veteran from Illinois, has a lot to thank his service dog, Carolyn, for, and he will let you know it. Quote, from two months old to today, two days before her first birthday, Carolyn has chosen to always be at my side, whether it be my bad dreams, anxiety attacks, PTSD. And she always senses this before anyone else. Even me, he said on Facebook. And now he can add heart attack to the list. When he woke up with chest pain and pale gray skin, Carolyn wouldn't leave his side, wouldn't let him go anywhere at all until he called 911. The paramedics said his vitals were only slightly elevated, but that his symptoms indicated a possible heart attack, which, of course, it was. Doctors say that making the call when he did prevented there from being any damage to his heart. His response? Carolyn made me do it. I will never get tired of hearing stories about service dogs. Yeah. Because it just makes my heart feel so good. Mm-hmm. Reminds yep. me like how awesome pets are, but also how important the animal human bond is, especially for people with disabilities or with 
chronic conditions or anything like that. Yeah, it's really, it's amazing stuff. Well, I tell you what, why don't we go talk to Dr. Rachel Geller? It's a good interview. Dr. Rachel Geller is a certified cat behavior and retention specialist through the Humane Society. Rachel consults with many cat shelters and is certified as a fear-free shelter specialist. She provides cat behavior help both in her native Massachusetts and throughout the country to both individual owners and shelters. As our resident cat guy, I am thrilled to have her here. Dr. Rachel Geller, welcome to Pet Resource Radio. Thank you for having me as your guest today. I'm so glad to have you here. So, all right, let's start at the beginning. When did you first encounter cats, and, and why did you develop such an affinity for them? What, what put you on the road to being a cat behaviorist? I love this question because I can really start from the beginning. And so I'll go back to my parents. Mm-hmm. And their view on pets, cats or otherwise, could really not have been more different. So my dad grew up in Dorchester, Massachusetts, and he grew up in a very small crowded apartment, and they didn't have any pets. On the other hand, my mother, she grew up in a single-family home where pets were part of the family and cherished family members. So they both grew up very differently. Um, Later in their marriage, I would say my my parents were definitely forced to strike a bit of a compromise about pets in our house Mm -hmm. when their firstborn, me, seemed to have discovered an endless parade of cats in the neighborhood who really <laughs> needed these. And these cats all somehow ended up at our house. But, you know, with these cats did come lessons in responsibility, and I think that started me on my way. I remember my dad teaching me that I always should feed the cats before I fed myself. Mm. Um, you know, when I woke up in the morning, I should take care of the cats before I took care of me because they were dependent on me, and I was there their caregiver. Um, and I think um, I really loved all of these cats. And I remember being very sad when a cat died. Sure. And at some point I started to keep a notebook of the names of all of these cats who had, who had lived, loved, and then died at our house. And I remember asking my dad whether he believed that all of these cats would meet me in heaven one day. Mm-hmm. And whether, you know, someday we'd meet in heaven and they would recognize me and I would recognize them. And he assured me that they would. He told me that the cats would remember me and I would remember them forever. And these lessons really taught me that the relationships I had with these cats had meaning. Right. And I think to me, I really grew up believing that cats are worth saving. And so as I got older, I began to volunteer in animal shelters. And as I got even older, I began serving on boards and advisory boards of cat shelters. And then I decided to make it official, and I became certified as a cat behaviorist through the Humane Society. And I'm really proud to say that my um, cat behavior and retention program was actually recognized as a model program by the Humane Society. Okay. Well, a lot of people think that cats are untrainable. Now, what what do you say to that? What do you think are some of the most common misconceptions when it comes to cat behavior and cat personalities? So I think the reason that people believe that cats can't be trained is because too many people misunderstand why the behavior is occurring in the first place, right? or they don't really try to find that underlying cause of the misbehavior. And a really common misconception I find is that people think that a cat's behavior is deliberate. So cats do not deliberately try to misbehave 
And I want everyone to know that your cats don't have bad behavior or do things like not using the litter box as a revenge, spite, or to teach you a lesson. Right. When your cat is misbehaving, there's some problem in her cat life, in her cat world, and your cat is trying to solve it in the way she knows how to as a cat. So, you know, maybe these ways may not be acceptable to us, but in your cat's mind, these ways may make perfect sense. So um, I often find that cats actually don't often have behavior problems. The cat is engaging in a completely normal cat behavior that simply needs a better alternative from from her human. Okay, so... All right. This is an assumption, but you know, even as a cat person, I feel like I often understand dog behavior more than I do cat behavior just through exposure to information in the world at large. Lots of folks, um, some vets included, see cats as small dogs, but nothing could be farther from the truth, could it? <laughs> you are so right, and, and and it's true. I mean, we because dogs are are walked, we are exposed to dogs more in our general everyday, you know, world because people are out walking their dogs. There are a lot of places you can bring a dog. So we do see people with dogs more as opposed to many people keep keep their cats indoors. Right. Um, But cats are definitely not small dogs, as you said. They perceive the world very differently. Um, Cats and dogs speak entirely different languages in terms of their vocalizations, and they have very different body language. Um, Even when they use a similar body language, the message can be different. So an example of this is when a dog wags his tail, this means he's happy to see you. But a cat doing the same thing is letting you know that she's very agitated. Right. So, right. So even similar body movements can mean very different things. And another huge difference is cats look at their world vertically while dogs view their world horizontally. Right. So... Many cat owners will tell me they've come home to find their cat on top of the refrigerator. And this is something you would never see with a dog. So their worldview is very different. Okay, well, let's talk about kitty boredom. We've talked about enrichment here on the show before. And if pets don't get enrichment, they're going to find, find it some other way, usually by acting out. Now, how does that manifest in cats? Okay, this is a really good question because cats do need opportunities to stalk, hunt, pounce, and capture. They are natural born hunters. And because of this, when you play with your cat, play should always simulate a hunt. So many people come to me and tell me that um, their cat is going after their ankles. Mm-hmm. Well, if the only stimulation and opportunity to capture in your cat's life is your ankles as you are walking by or your hands as you go to pet her, then your cat is going to try to satisfy her natural needs by pouncing on you and biting you. And this is something that usually is not acceptable to most people. So boredom does result in behaviors that appear aggressive or destructive to the humans or even other cats in the household, but it really isn't aggression. As you said, it's just boredom and lack of enrichment. So when you play with your cat, the thing to remember is the most important part of the game is the capture. Right. So remember, play is supposed to resemble a hunt, right? So a successful hunt ends in a capture. I see so many people who think that the whole point of the game is how long you can keep that toy away from the cat. Right. The cat gets close and they yank it away. But the truth is you want to let your cat have multiple captures. 
this is how you let your cat feel empowered and feel happy. Your cat wants that physical, tangible success that comes from watching, stalking, pouncing, and ultimately catching. So you really want to simulate a hunt. So stay with the game for a while. You know, play with your cat for a good 10 to 15 minutes and intersperse the chasing and the pouncing with plenty of captures. Now, as I said, we want to simulate a hunt. So we want to wind down the game and finish the game with one last final successful capture. Right. And to make it a perfect play experience, let the climax of the game happen when you give your cat a little treat. And this treat will simulate the feast after the hunt. And this is really what you want to do when you play with your cat, right? A lot of people don't do the, you know, think about the prey, right? The prey is getting tired. The prey is getting injured. The prey dies, right? So you wind it down and then let that cat get that really, you know, great, super duper juicy, successful capture. But always follow the play with food. So now you're putting your cat into her her very natural hunt, eat, contentment cycle. Um, A lot of times people play with their cats, leaving them revved up. They Mm -hmm. don't end with the final capture and the food. But when you follow it with the final capture and the food, you leave your cat content and relaxed. And now she's going to feel like, you know, queen of her territory or king of his castle. And that's how you want your cat to feel. Um, Now, having said that... I'm sure most of you listeners can't spend their whole day playing with their cats as much as they'd like to. (laughs) So there are other methods of environmental enrichment that you can provide. I love puzzle feeders um, because this also gives your cat that feeling of a satisfying capture um, and feeling of accomplishment because they've completed some task. Um, But in general, think about doing things to keep your cat busy. Because environmental enrichment plays a huge role in preventing destructive and aggressive behavior. Well, the two most common behavioral issues that we get questions about here are scratching and urinating outside the litter pan. So let's let's talk about those for a moment. Now, with, with scratching, why do cats scratch and how can we redirect that behavior in ways that aren't destructive to our belongings? Okay, so cats do have a need to scratch. And it's interesting because as a cat behaviorist, I always get people coming to me saying, how can I stop my cat from scratching? Right. But we don't want to stop our cats from scratching because um, it's a scratch. Scratching is um, it's a natural behavior, so we can't stop it and we can't untrain it. Um, scratching fulfills for a cat physical, emotional, and territorial needs. So we're not going to we're not going to change that, but we can change where your cat scratches. Mm-hmm. Um, So as you first asked, let's really understand why our cats need to scratch. So physically, scratching conditions the cat's claws. Emotionally, um, there's an emotional component to scratching. Um, It displaces their anxiety and stress when they get that really terrific stretch as they go to scratch, and it Mm -hmm. releases their, their back muscles. So it's an emotional release for a cat. And... A lot of people don't realize this, but scratching is also territorial. Right. So the scratch itself, right, is visual. Mm -hmm. So that is a signal to other cats. But there's also scent in the paw pad. So it's scent marking through um, the the, um, cat's paw pads, the scent glands in the cat's paw pads as well. So... We want our cats to scratch away. We just need to figure out how to get, how to redirect them to scratch um, someplace appropriate. So 
The reason I see most often that the scratching post is not being used, it's um, A, it's not the right texture or material. Mm-hmm. So it needs to be rope or sisal wrapped. Yep. Um, yeah, because carpet um, just won't do the job. And worse, their claws can sometimes get entangled in those carpet loops. So yeah. we, want rope, we want rope or sisal. Um, location. Um, if it's too far away, you know, people kind of want to hide it in a place that the people, the, their guests don't see it in the house because it doesn't mess their decor. But if the location is inconvenient or your cat has to go, you know, pack a picnic for an indoor hike to go use her scratching post, she's going to resort to using whatever is closest. Mm-hmm. Um, and height and weight issues. This seems, um, you know, obvious, but I, I see many posts that are kind of wobbly. Mm. They're not sturdy, and I see a lot of them that are, are not tall enough. The post must, must be at least three feet tall. Yeah. Your cat is not going to want to, like, have to crouch over to scratch. It's just not how it works. So it has to be tall, and it has to be sturdy. So we want to say we want to deter the scratching cat from, you know, the place of scratching we don't like. It might be your couch. It might be your carpet. So whenever you take away something from a cat, you must, must, must provide an appealing alternative at the same time. So we'll start off with using a deterrent, and that's going to make the scratching surface, which the cat did think was appealing, now he's not going to think it's so great. Um, But we have to deter as we provide the right scratching post for the cash. So for the deterrence, think slick or sticky. These are textures cats don't like to scratch. Right. So you can use double-sided tape, a slick plastic placemat, shelf paper, a plastic carpet runner, and put these deterrents um, on the places where your cat is currently scratching. Now, I know it's not going to be very attractive, and your living room isn't going to look so hot right now, but remember, this is temporary as we retrain the cash. Okay, so we have the deterrence in place. Now for the redirection. What I want your listeners who are having a scratching problem to do is to place the right scratching post, as I just described, next to the spot where your cat is, is currently scratching. So now your cat's going to go up to her... Um, usual scratching location, do-do-do-do-do, she walks up to where she likes to scratch, and now she is going to see that this old spot is looking pretty unscratchable. It's suddenly very unappealing because it's slick or it's sticky. But, aha, nearby is this really great-looking new option. So it's right there, it fits everything she needs, and trust me, once she sinks her claws into the post, it's going to feel so much better than these other things she was trying to scratch her claws on. And the best thing is the cat makes the decision on her own that she likes the scratching post better. And then once the cat is regularly using the post, then you can begin to remove the, remove, um, the deterrence. But I always tell people, do that very gradually. Make sure the cat is really consistently using the post mm-hmm. before removing the deterrence. Well, then what about going outside the litter box? Now, there's multiple reasons that this might be the case, aren't there? You know what? We could do an entire podcast (laughs) just on litter box issues. (laughs) It's a big topic um, and probably my most popular um, 
request for cat behavior help is litter box issues. Um, people just don't like it when a cat thinks outside the box. Right. But it's really important to understand that cats feel incredibly vulnerable in their litter boxes. So what happens when, when they're in that peeing or pooping position is they are very aware of all of the potential cats or opponents or invaders who could be on their territory. And it's really important for everybody to realize that these cats or opponents can be real or imagined. Even an only cat in the household, an indoor cat who's never been outside, mm-hmm. will get the ceiling. So having the litter box in a location where there are clear, clean sight lines, a 360-degree view, is very important to your cat. So high-sided boxes may impede your cat's view and make your cat feel closed in. Right. If the box is right up against a wall or tucked into a corner or say there's a piece of furniture blocking her view, this can all cause litter box aversion. Same thing with covered litter boxes. Most cats do not like covered litter boxes because they completely reduce the visual field. A lot of people like to tuck litter boxes under something, right, so they're not seen. But if the litter box is under a sink or under a desk, um, that, again, then impedes the cat's view. And there are a lot of cats, too, if if the box is on the same side as the entrance to the room, then they won't use the box because they can't see out the entrance and into the hallway. Most importantly, I do want to tell your listeners to always rule out a medical cause first. Right. Because if your cat has a urinary tract infection or crystals in the urine or some type of kidney problem, all of the behavior modification in the world is not going to solve the problem. So we really want to make sure there's not a medical issue underlying the litter box problem. Okay. Well, beyond those, what are some of the more common issues you see with cats? Well, I get a lot of calls, you know, regarding multi-cat households, you Mm -hmm. know, cats not getting along with each other. I get a lot of calls regarding cat introductions. You know, a lot of times people don't go through the proper introduction process. So, yeah, the the resident cat does not like feeling, you know, as if her territory is totally up for grabs for this new cat. And the newcomer might feel like she's being plopped into enemy territory. So that can be a problem if you don't do a right a proper cat-to-cat introduction. Well, do you have any cases that are beyond the scope of anything you've seen before, like any behaviors that were well outside normal for a cat? Well, so I do around 1,000 cat behavior cases every year, mm-hmm. and I do them all completely free of charge. So when you work with that many cats and that many people, you definitely see and hear some interesting things. Yeah. So, so I've had clients who insist and perhaps it's true, who, who am I to say, that their cats play poker with them or chess with them. <laughs> I, I, I didn't see it myself, so you know, going okay. on their word. All right, all right. And you know, every once in a while, I do get a case of you know, really what I would call severe aggression in a cat. And sometimes you have to recognize that there are certain levels of aggression that is just not normal in a cat. And again, you know, If somebody comes to me and the cat is really extremely aggressive and unresponsive to any type of behavior modification, I always advise my clients to rule out a medical reason for the aggressive behavior. Mm -hmm. Um, There are a lot of diseases, like pretty common ones in cats, like hyperthyroidism 
or dental disease or even osteoarthritis that can cause aggression in cats. Mm -hmm. It's called fear aggression. So again, I really um, ask people to consult a veterinarian if they really seem something that's completely out of normal, you know, out of normal range for a cash. Are there any particularly rewarding cases that you've dealt with that kept a cat with a loving family? Yes, I actually had one happen recently. Um, a woman contacted me and she said she would have to surrender her cash. Mm. Um, she had cancer and she had several small children. Wow. And she was feeling, and it was really sad, she was really feeling terrified, exhausted, and completely overwhelmed. And amidst all of this, as if she didn't have enough going on, she had an older cat and she was feeling bad because she didn't think she could give the cat enough attention. Oh. So she felt that because she couldn't, you know, give the cat the attention the cat was used to, she would have to surrender the cash. So this woman and I actually talked for a really long time. Um, actually, I spent most of my time listening, which, is, which was good. I listened to her describe her situation. Mm-hmm. And finally, I said to her, you know, your kids are really stressed out because you're sick but they're going to feel even more stressed if they lose the family cat at the same time. Right. And I reminded her that cats are loyal, caring, and incredibly perceptive animals. So something I'm sure you already know. So I Mm -hmm. told her that if her cat did not get the same amount of attention for a period of time because she was getting treated for cancer, well, that cat was part of the family, and that's what families do. And that's okay. Um, I also explained to her that the cat would definitely prefer to give up some attention temporarily right. rather than to be separated from her family permanently. Yep. So, you know, it was interesting because she really, I felt like she really just needed to be reassured. And then she started to cry. She said, do you really think it would be okay to keep my cash? Aww. So, you know, I know, you know, it, it was so touching because she really didn't want to give up her cat at all. She wanted to do the right thing, right? right? She just wasn't sure what that was. So she kept her cash. I promised my help and support. And um, the last time I checked in, everybody was doing really well. So that was one of those rewarding situations where, you know, you help both a cat and a person, right? A lot of times people say to me, why do you spend so much time helping cats? Why don't you, you know, help people more. But really, whenever you help a cat, you're also always helping a person. Yep. Agreed. Well, if people want to reach out and see what you're about, where do they go? They can go to my website, which is drrachelcatbehavior.com. And it's spelled pretty much as it sounds, D-R-R-A-C-H-E-L, catbehavior.com. Perfect. Well, Dr. Rachel Keller. Perfect. Perfect. (laughs) Thank you so much for being on the show today. I really appreciate it. Well, I was delighted to be a guest. I had a great time. Um, Nothing makes me happier than talking about cats. So thank you. November is National Pet Diabetes Month. The amount of pets diagnosed with diabetes keeps growing and growing. 1 in 230 cats and 1 in 308 dogs are diagnosed with diabetes, and that's a number that's increasing. But what are the signs of it? What should you be looking out for? One thing to keep an eye out for is excessive drinking of water and increased urination. Why? Well, it's all about that glucose. Glucose is a simple sugar that's the main source of energy for your body's cells. 
the pancreas creates a hormone called insulin that allows the cells in your body to absorb that glucose. Diabetes occurs when there isn't enough insulin in the bloodstream to allow the cells to absorb the glucose. That means the glucose builds up in the bloodstream, which is a condition called hyperglycemia. Eventually, that glucose spills over into the urine and pulls large amounts of water with it. It means your hyperglycemic pet will be urinating more and drinking tons of water to compensate. So that's why you should keep an eye out for that symptom. Another sign is a marked decrease in weight. Since the cells can't get that glucose, they need to get energy from somewhere else. So the body starts breaking down fat and muscle tissue to keep itself going. That's what causes the weight loss. But it's more dangerous than just that, because consuming that body fat creates acids called ketones. If there's too much of that in the bloodstream, it can lead to what's called diabetic ketoacidosis, basically an alteration of the, of the blood's chemical balance, which can be fatal. Those are your two major symptoms to look for. Others, a decreased appetite for one, along with cloudy eyes, especially in dogs, and chronic or recurring infections. Between those, the excessive water drinking, and the weight loss, you've got all the main indicators of diabetes in pets. So how do you prevent it? All that regular stuff we talk about all the time, keeping them active so they're healthy and burning the calories they take in, feeding them a healthy diet, and keeping them at a healthy weight. What's a healthy weight? Talk to your vet. It's really easy to fall into a trap where you convince yourself that your pet's not chunky, but your vet may feel otherwise. That's why regular checkups with a full-service vet are your best bet at preventing and catching diabetes early. And why do you need to catch it early? Because with early diagnosis, diabetes can be much easier to manage. What does management look like? A much stricter food and exercise regimen for one. So if it seems like it's a if it seems like a hassle to keep track of your pet's food, just wait until their life depends on it. It's a lot more pressure. Managing diabetes also means regular insulin shots to keep their body processing that glucose. It's a very small needle and it's not actually too hard to do. In fact, when my wife and I first got together, her cat Mario was diabetic, and he actually loved his insulin shot. After the first couple of times, he came to realize the shot made him feel better and would wait for it. Now, Mario is a beautiful saint of a cat, so your mileage may vary. Oh, but another thing about Mario is that his diabetes went into remission. This is something that happens with cats sometimes, but not with dogs. So, folks, please know that diabetes is no joke, but it's not a death sentence. With early detection and a solid health regimen, diabetic pets can still live long, healthy lives. And now we say goodbye to you, friends. Big thanks again to Dr. Rachel Geller for being on the show today. If you want more information about her and her work, head on over to drrachelcatbehavior.com. As for us, we're a nonprofit organization keeping pets and people together, and you can help. Just go to prckc.org and you can donate, volunteer, shop our online store, and more. If you're listening to us on your favorite podcasting app, be sure to rate us and leave us a review. That always helps new folks find us. And go ahead and follow us on social media for the latest news. We're at PRR Podcast on Twitter and Facebook. So until next time, tail wags and purrs to you and yours. And as the author James Harriet wrote, I have felt cats rubbing their faces against mine and touching my cheek with claws carefully sheathed. These things to me are expressions of love. Take care. Pet Resource Radio is a production of the Pet Resource Center of Kansas City, hosted and produced by Sierra Howe and myself, Dave Shapiro, written, edited, mixed, and mastered by Dave Shapiro, music by Hazel Rob Musical Industries, also Dave Shapiro. More info at soundcloud.com slash Hazel Musical Industries. Music.